Amen. Amen. Well, uh, I've entitled this sermon, How Repentance Redeems the Ministry of the Church. Now, this is a very interesting passage because on a corporate level, you know that the church had been in, out of sorts with Paul. The church had really been out of step. And so Paul was forced to write a letter uh, spoken in a very uh, disciplinary tone, in a tone of correction. And uh, you would think that upon the Corinthian sin that they were disqualified for certain ministries, and certainly they were. They were greatly, greatly affected. Their effectiveness was greatly uh, affected by their, by their sin and the things that they had done so that they were not in a proper relationship with the leadership. And uh, we saw in verses 11 mainly, verse 11 and 12, the church's repentance and how they, they were brought back into a proper relationship mainly with Paul and thus with the leadership there, the apostolic leadership, mind you, with Paul and then with his associates. But because of that repentance, the church's ministry was redeemed. And so I saw great, great incentive here for our lives to see that God is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of, if you would, to use the cliche, He is a God of second chances. He is a God that can redeem things that we have lost. And this brings me to the whole subject of repentance and how valuable it is. You know, when you look at repentance in the Bible, from beginning to end, repentance is all about having a change of attitude, a change of heart, a change of mind. And uh, it has everything to do with turning away from an ungodly direction and turning to God to do what's pleasing to Him, to obey His commandments, to do His will, to obey His word, to walk in His ways. I love it. Repentance is God's means to sanctify His people. It's, it's God's means to sanctify us individually, as you see in, for example, Psalm 51, there. Paul, uh, uh, David's prayer of, of repentance, um, obviously there on an individual level, also uh, the repentance of Peter and his, his restoration process in John chapter 21, but it also happens on a corporate level. You see this in the Old Testament throughout, don't you? In the history of Israel, it's, a, it's, it's this vicious cycle of Israel's sin and then at times Israel's repentance and therefore Israel's restoration. And it, and it happens that way over and over again. Uh, but for example, in Jeremiah chapter 7, sort of Jeremiah captures this idea of repenting and then the fruit that flows out of that. Let me just read this to you. Jeremiah 7, verse 3 to 7 says this. The God of Israel is speaking to them, and he says, Amend your ways and your deeds. He says, And I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words or say, This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. And the, that repetition is they were trying to say that they were in true worship, in a, by worshiping the Baals, but they were not. He says, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, if you don't shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after the gods of your own ruin, then I will let you in this place. I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Israel could expect 
patriarchal blessings because of their repentance. And in a similar way, the Corinthians could expect certain ecclesiastical blessings for having repented of their own folly, their own sin, their own error of being uh, siding with Paul's uh, opposition group and now to supporting Paul. And this is why I say God redeemed the ministry of this church, took them from a place where they were no longer influential, no, no longer effective for ministry, and redeemed them so that they were effective once more. Let's look at a few of these aspects of this redemption, of this, the ministry having been redeemed. Number one, I want to point out that they were redeemed in terms of their influence. Look at verse 13 again. He says, for this reason, we have been comforted, and beside our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. They had the ability to comfort they had the ability to make joy the heart of its leaders, and they had the ability to refresh, in this case, refreshing Titus. It's interesting, but that the word comfort that Paul uses here is the word encouragement, parakaleo. It's the word that simply means to come alongside of someone, to assist someone, to help someone, and in that way encourage them. See, the church had lost that capacity because of its sin, because of its error, they were fallen, and they were ineffective for ministry. And I see this so much so clear in the context of the local church, that when a church is not, fun, is not right, that when there's problems in the church, it, it just hinders the church's ability to progress, to minister, to function. It hurts the ability of the church to do the things that a healthy church ought to do. The church is no longer effective, but because of verse 11, there's been a radical change of heart a radical change of mind, genuine repentance. That was at the very root of what happened here. Therefore, influence and effectiveness is the fruit of it. Notice they comfort Paul. And notice that besides the comfort that they gave to Paul, Paul also rejoiced. He was made glad because repentance redeemed the church's influence. And it enabled them to make Titus rejoice as well. This is, these are two aspects of a healthy church. What's a healthy church? A healthy church has to have the ability to comfort and to rejoice. I mean, that's part of the ministry of prophecy. And if you take prophecy at least uh, on a very, very basic fundamental level as speaking forth the word of God, probably as MacArthur points out, through preaching would be one avenue. It is for the purpose of comfort. It is for the purpose of comfort. And Paul Paul's joy was, we could say, organic. Notice, notice how it spreads. It begins with the joy of Titus, and because of the joy of Titus, Paul is made to rejoice. So little by little, this church is coming back to the place where it's supposed to be. And that's a church, that's a fundamental mark of a true church, to be able to make people glad, to be able to rejoice the heart of God's people. You need to be able to go to a church and be exhorted, be comforted, and also be made glad. It needs to be able to impart to you the joy of the Spirit, the joy of your salvation, the joy of the Lord. And if there is not that, then you wonder, is there something wrong with this church? Or is the joy superficial? 
Is the joy simply the joy of, you know, a performance? Is it just the joy because the music is good and the programs are plentiful? But no, as we're going to see, even in this passage right here, this joy was rooted in the gospel, rooted in a healthy, true, thriving church, rooted in the truth, as we'll go on to see. But not only did they comfort Paul, make him joyful, they also refreshed the saints, in this case, Titus. It says, because his spirit has been refreshed by you. Notice he, he, he says it was his spirit that was refreshed. It goes down beneath the surface. It goes beneath a superficial uh, a fellowship, down to the very essence, down to the very heart of the man. That's when you, knew, that's when you know that true joy has taken place. It wasn't just about cracking jokes. It wasn't just about getting together and talking about the ball game. It wasn't just about getting together and talking about politics. There was true spiritual fellowship. And because it was spiritual, there was spiritual revival that went on. The word refresh is a word that is used over and over by the Apostle Paul to describe the type of ministry that should flow from the church and from one another. It's beautiful because this happens both, on a, again, on a corporate level and on an individual level. Our individual ministry is inseparable from the church's ministry. What we do towards one another, how we minister to each other, is deeply rooted in what the church is, should be and what it should be like. Let me give you some examples of this. Paul uses this word over and over to stress this idea of refreshment. In, uh, in Romans chapter 15, he talks there about being refreshed. He says, he says that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Same word, the only difference is, is it's a compound word. It means to be refreshed with rest. And so there he expects to be refreshed. Do you come to church and expect to be refreshed? Do you come to church and expect to be revived in your inner man? You ought to. And that sentiment should be reciprocated from the church. We should be looking to refresh others. To quote that old proverb, as you water others, you yourself will be watered. In Philemon, notice one another ministry going on here. Philemon verse 20. I almost said chapter 20. But there's not even It's just one chapter, verse 20. It says, brother... Let me benefit from you in the Lord. Oh, really listen to that language. Let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I tell you what, when you come into fellowship with that type of expectation, it will, it will do two things. It will get you ready to have to be the type of person that can refresh someone in the Lord. It will make you be the type of person that you can refresh a person's heart in Christ. Again, this is no superficial fellowship. This is deep spiritual fellowship grounded and rooted in the gospel, grounded and rooted in our union with Christ. But on a corporate level, going back to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, that is, verse 17. He says, I rejoiced over the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus. Wow, these names, right? These are perfect baby names right here. If you're looking for a good name to name your baby, go to 1 Corinthians 16, 17. 
for some ideas. He says, because they've supplied what is lacking on your part, verse 18, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. These were edifying men. These were effective men. These were men that were just oozing the spirit of God. They were just oozing edification. They were oozing affirmation. These were very, very uh, effective brothers in the church. Again, one person can refresh so many others. Again, Philemon, verse 7, he says, I've come to you, he says, I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because of the hearts of the saints that they have been refreshed through you, brother. I love to meet that type of person. I can think of saints in my mind that they're, they're, they excel in this area. To be able to refresh the, the, the saints. And you know that when you leave that type of brother, that type of sister, you leave refreshed in their presence. You've been refreshed. And this is the kind of influence that the church came to have again. The influence was that they were able to comfort, they were able to rejoice, and they were able to impart refreshment, spiritual refreshment. This is the second item. Not only did, it, did, did, did their repentance redeem their influence, but it also redeemed the church's honor. Look at verse 14. He says, For if in, if in anything I've boasted to him, that is Titus, about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. Oh, this is glorious. So verse 14 really comes to elaborate and expand upon this idea of Paul's joy. It gives us the reason, it gives us the nature of his joy, the basis of his joy. The reason why is because the church's honor has been restored. He says, if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. And if this passage is emblematic of God redeeming the church's honor, well, then several observations should be made here about what is an honorable, what is a commendable church. Well, number one is just that. A church, an honorable church, is to be commended. It is to be commended. Paul stresses the fact that he boasted to Titus about the church, this affirmation. You know, Paul does this often in his letters. He commends the church for their faith. He commends the church for their love for one another. He commends the church for their ministry to all the saints. And he commends them for their obedience to the gospel. And that is found over and over in the Bible, in Paul's writings. This is no exception here. He is boasting to Titus concerning the Corinthians. He probably boasted to them in this way. He probably boasted by saying, look, these Corinthians will succumb to the truth. They will obey my letter. They will obey the severe letter that we talk so much about. The last time he mentioned it was in verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, etc., etc. He wrote to them this severe letter, remember, that caused them sorrow. Sometimes it's called the sorrowful letter, the severe letter, the tearful letter, because Paul wrote it, chapter 2, verse 4, in tears. He wrote it in tears, or I think it's verse 3. But uh, 
He knew that they would obey. He knew that the church was going to follow suit. He, he, he probably told Titus, Titus, I know they will do it. I know that the letter will have a positive effect. And remember, until his deployment to go visit them, they didn't know how the letter was received. They didn't know what transpired. Did the letter push them farther away? Or did the letter reconcile them and bring them back to their senses? Well, Paul seemed to be confident of that, and he commended the church. He said, look, I boasted about you to Titus, and I was not put to shame. You didn't make me eat my words, in other words. You did the right thing. He was proud of them. He was filled with pride for them. They were on the path of dishonor and shame, but repentance changed all of that. Repentance changed all of that so that now we can all glean from this church. We can learn from the, the example and the character of this church. Paul commends the church because of their, ultimately, because they obey the gospel. That's the thing. He's commending them that they're a true church. The gospel has made a lasting impact in their lives. And that's the way, and that's what churches should be filled with today. Gospel-impacted people, people that will obey the gospel, submit to the gospel, that will live in the gospel and live out the gospel. But this is, the, this is another point. An honorable church does not disappoint. Not only will it be commendable, therefore, but it will also not disappoint. And you see this in that word, I was not put to shame, which means this leads me to a secondary thought here. And that is that the church submitted to the authority of the apostle Paul. You know, submission in this area and submission to authority, by and large, is sorely lacking in the church today. You can just see this everywhere. There's a spirit of rebellion all over the place. And, and, and a high view of the church and a high view of the leadership of the church is at an all-time low. And that reason, for that reason, ministers even become timid. They become intimidated by their churches. Spoke a little bit about this last week. They're afraid of offending anyone. They're afraid of turning people away. And therefore, they're afraid that they're going to lose members, lose money, lose tithes, lose influence. But for Paul, one of the reasons why he commended them, I believe, is because they did submit to authority. And this is such a biblical concept. Despite our anti-institutional spirit that just permeates our world and our culture today. I mean, how many times have you heard, has someone told you, you know, I, I believe in God, but I'm not into organized religion. I'm not into institutional religion. They just want your money. Whatever it is, whatever the excuse, the spirit of rebellion is alive and well today in our culture. But you know, in the Bible, I tell you what, if you want to be a Christian, that is the complete opposite of what Christianity is. Christianity is a life of submission. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, submit to one another. In Ephesians 5, he goes on to say, wives, submit to your husbands. Slaves, submit to your masters. All of us are to be in subjection to our governing authorities, etc., etc., etc. But on an ecclesiastical level, let me just read to you some verses. 
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. That's exactly what the Corinthians did. They keep watch over your souls as those that will give an account. You see, so submission is done ultimately with an eye towards the divine and ultimate final assize, the judgment that will come even upon the leaders. I say especially upon the leaders. James chapter 3, a stricter judgment that will come. And so we all do it out of reverence. We all do it out of fear. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I've got like 10 verses here. I won't get to them all, but you get the point. This just permeates the New Testament. This is Christian ethics This is the Christian worldview, far from an anti-institutional, anti-authoritarian spirit. The Christian spirit is humble. The Christian spirit is submissive. I'll never forget the story of John Calvin. John Calvin, one of the greatest theologians ever to live, okay, always desired a life of recluse, hermitage. He wanted to be a hermit, and I can totally identify with him. There's nothing greater than just be locked away somewhere, studying and surrounded by your books. I mean, that is really living. And, uh, but God would never let Calvin do that. It seemed like no matter how much Calvin tried to get away and get out of Geneva and go somewhere where he could just retire, his contemporaries and those that looked to him for spiritual guidance would often ap- approach him, like Pharaoh approached him and said, you need to go back to Geneva. God is going to curse your retirement. And people know that one of the characteristics of John Calvin was that he was very submissive to authority. He felt the needs of the church and the authority that these other spiritual men came with and uh, uh, approached him and, and, and addressed him with, and he submitted to their authority. And he forebode his life of recluse and went back into the heat of the battle where they were looking to kill him, but all because he was submissive. He had such a high view of the church. He never wanted to be out of step, out of the blessing of the local church. He wanted to have the blessing of God and the blessing of His church. The third thing is this. An honorable church receives and reflects the truth. It receives the truth. Notice he says there, we spoke all things to you in truth. And then they reflect the truth because what he boasted to Titus proved to be the truth. That's their obedience. Their obedience led to sort of this reflection, the reception of the truth. There's one thing. You're receiving the truth, but will you succumb to the truth? Will you reflect the truth in your own life? Are you going to let the truth flow in and out of you, expressed in a life of obedience to the gospel, expressed in a life of obedience to the word of God? As Paul tells the Thessalonians, you receive the word from us as it really is, not the word of man, but the word of God. I recently forgot who I was talking to, but I I was reminded of what I think of preaching. 
What is preaching? The study of homiletics is the art and science of preaching. But more fundamentally than how you do it is what you're doing. I believe strongly that when God's word is preached, it is a supernatural event. It's not just like the conversation we were just having out in the hallway. Preaching is the word of God, the inspired prophetic word of God being heralded in the spirit of God for the benefit and the edification of his people and for the conviction of of those who are not his people. There are spiritual things going on when the word of God is being preached. I believe that with all my heart. This is a supernatural event. That's why we come together surrounded around the word of God. That's why we don't get rid of this pulpit. That's why I won't preach just off a little music stand because I'm trying with this hunk of wood up here to make a statement that the word of God is going to be propped up in our church, that the Word of God is going to be central, preeminent. It's going to be upheld. It's going to be revered. Because what we're doing, brothers and sisters, is a holy, holy thing. This is a holy moment. God is speaking through His Word. And the way that the Spirit applies His Word in the lives of His people is supernatural. I know it because I've got the testimonies to prove it of people that come up and talk to me. I had a woman once come up to me and say, you know, for weeks I came and heard you. I didn't understand a single thing you were saying. It was all a big blur to me. It was like gibberish. And then one day, I don't know what happened. All of a sudden, everything you were saying clicked. And all of a sudden, the Word of God began to make sense to me. That's what I'm talking about. That's God sidestepping me to accomplish his will. That's God just using me as a mouthpiece. The preacher is just a mouthpiece. I tell you, this is the type of receiving the truth, reflecting the truth, obedience to the truth that we want to have. The Corinthians had been restored in this. They've been redeemed in this. They, they properly received the word of God and then they properly obeyed the word of God. And Paul was always quick, just like you and I should be, quick to commend the church, to affirm the church, to practice affirmation in the church when obedience was present. Second Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonians 1 Chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Just one example. He says, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brethren. He says, As it's only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Wow. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of a thriving church. Not necessarily thriving numerically. Not necessarily drive, thriving financially, but first and foremost, and most importantly than all, thriving spiritually. It says, therefore, he says, we ourselves speak proudly of you to all the churches of God. Isn't that amazing? For your perseverance and faith. Let's go on to the third thing. Not only was their influence redeemed, not only was their honor redeemed, 
But as it all comes to a climax here, their power, what I called their power, has been redeemed. So the church, redeeming the church's power, and power by power, I mean effective, effective, productive, productive. So these last two verses here describe the mutual ministry that exists now between the Corinthians and their leaders. In the early church, Apostle Paul, the apostles, and their associates in this text, Titus, their repentance rendered the church useful again for ministry. The church is now beginning to fire all cylinders, so to speak. All cylinders. Everything is starting to fall back into place. This passage gives us four indicators, therefore, of the powerful effectiveness of the redeemed ministry of the church. Four. Okay? It's not going to take too long. Four. Number one, the power of affirmation. Just kind of what we mentioned already. The power of affirmation. That is, affirmation from its leaders. And you see this by Titus's affection. He says, his affection abounds all the more toward you. You see, now Titus is free to love and affirm this church. His affections have been revived for this church, which is in total contradistinction. If you go back to chapter 6, verse 12, you remember there that Paul says, look, it's your affections are restrained. Open, our, open your heart to us wide. He says, you're not restrained by us. We're not stopping the flow of affection. You are. But now that repentance has taken place, he can reaffirm his affection for them. And that's really where it has to be if it's going to be true affirmation. It's got to be on the level of the affections. What are the affections? The word here, splachna, it's a real ugly word, right? Splachna, just feel like you splattered something. The word splachna literally means your guts, your bowels, the very inside of you. It's just his way to say, look, deep down in the very pit of your gut, there is a, there is a, there is a sense there. There is an emotion. Splachna is the word that just conveys this idea of the seat of the emotions. It wasn't a professional affirmation. It wasn't just a religious affirmation. It was heartfelt. He was emotionally involved with this church. For Titus, it was not just business as usual. It was not just a career. It wasn't just a secular job like any other job. He was in love with the church. It was affection. There was emotional attachment to the church, and more pastors need that type of genuine connection with their churches. So much clerical pastoral ministry going on, so much clinical, nice and clean and very sterile. We need more weeping in the ministry. We need more getting down and dirty with the people of God. We need more emotional involvement, connection, weeping with those that weep, rejoicing with those that rejoice. Don't hide in the pulpit. Don't hide in your books. Don't hide in your office. Don't hide in the study. It's so easy to do. The second thing is the power, not just of affirmation, but the power of obedience. This is the overall mark. He says, as he remembers the obedience of you all. See, this is why we go phrase by phrase as we exegete. This is called exegesis. 
We are breaking down the passage of Scripture phrase by phrase, taking the causal units, which is just this, the units of thought in the text, and we're, we're ex- extracting all of the riches and the truths of each one of these phrases in its context, because if we don't, we miss stuff like this. We miss stuff like I can't fathom the type of preaching that just will read a verse really lightly and really lightly just kind of comment on what it might mean and then go on to what the preacher really wants to talk about, which is whatever, his program, his ministry, his vacation, his jokes, whatever. I know that sounds harsh, but I'm sorry. It's the way Paul thinks. we got to think the thoughts of God after him. We have to break down the authorial intent And so the church succumbed to obey the gospel, their obedience. Oh, they were ready to obey whatever the truth was. And notice it was corporate, the obedience of you all. Now, let me just say a word here, an argument that I need to make. Because after chapter 10, especially, we're going to get back into a very controversial, very confrontive tone. Paul's going to go back to speaking almost in disciplinary tones again, coming after false teachers, false prophets. He talks about messengers of Satan, servants of Satan, talking about having to maybe come with a whip, coming with correction against the church. And that is to say, though this issue, this matter of this Pauline faction that was opposing Paul, they had come to support Paul. So on this score, which was the big one, if, the church, if that individual, whoever he was in chapter 2, verse 4, if that individual could turn the church away from Paul, then everything else is lost. Wouldn't you agree? Everything else is lost. So this is a, this is a really crucial, crucial strike here by the Apostle Paul. This was critical to bring the church back. But widespread repentance led to widespread obedience. And then lastly, there was cooperation, or thirdly rather, there was the power of cooperation. And this is a big one. Look at the last phrase there. He says, he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. So once again, and we're going to see this in chapters, beginning in chapter 8, that's the context of the Jerusalem collection. That's the cooperation that is going to resume after the church's repentance. It's going to go forward as Paul planned it to be because the church is back in line, back in step, back in harmony with what Paul is doing and what his plans were to collect this money and take it to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And so now they're back in gear. But Paul describes the church's cooperation by receiving Titus, and then he uses this Pauline phrase. This is unique to Paul. Nobody else in the New Testament uses it. With fear and trembling. You see that? Where does that come from, and what does it mean? With fear and trembling. Is it fear and trembling from Paul? They feared and trembled in the presence of Paul, his apostolic authority. Well, some argue that. And some say it's mainly on a human level. It's mainly on a, on a uh, not on a vertical level, but on a horizontal level. They fear the authority, ecclesiastical authority. And that's right. There, there certainly is probably the element of that. But this phrase, with fear and trembling, comes from the Old Testament. That's where Paul got it. He uses the phrase to describe all sorts of different areas of the Christian life. He uses it to talk about the, the heart that we should have in submitting to our earthly employers. 
He uses it to describe in what heart, with what manner, with what mindset we should engage in our sanctification. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And he uses it to, to describe the attitude that we have to have in the ministry of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 2, 3. He came to them in fear and in trembling. But the phrase is ultimately God-centered because it is used in the Old Testament to describe the covenant people of God and their fear and their trembling, their phobos and their trupu. That's the way the Septuagint translates it. Paul takes the Septuagint words of the Hebrew and he uses it now to apply it to the Corinthians to say, look, look, you are, you are to do this in fear and in trembling. As a matter of fact, you did it. You responded with a proper, reverent attitude towards God, knowing that ultimately it is God to whom we have to do. Peter O'Brien, talking about this phrase, he says, the phrase has to do with an attitude of reverence and awe in the presence of God, a godly fear of the people in view of the last day, in view of the final day, that is, in view of the final, just knowing your accountability before God, right? That's the way we, it says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Fear and trembling because of what? Because of the last day. Because of the final assize, you fear and you tremble before a holy God. And that's the way that they received Titus. They received him with reverence. Not because of who Titus was. Not because Titus was, you know, their pope. Not because Paul was such an authoritarian figure. Ultimately, their fear was rooted in a fear of God. And if it's not rooted in a fear of God, if it's just rooted in a fear of man, it will always fall short. If you're doing things just because you fear man, you, you fear the repercussions at the hands of the elders, it's, it's not good. That's not proper fear. If you do it just because you're afraid of your wife, that's not proper fear. If you do it just because you're afraid of your parents, that's not proper Christian fear. You have to do it first and foremost because you fear Almighty God who has the power to cast body and soul into hell. Let's just get right to it. You fear the judgment of God. And yes, I'm not meaning that as a Christian you feel that you're going to go to hell because you're not. But you, you understand who it is that you serve. You understand the holiness of God, the power of God. You understand what type of God you're worshiping, that he is a holy God, that he's a, a God to be feared. And to the fall in the hands of this living God is a terrifying thing, terrifying thing, especially if you are not right with him. Paul says earlier in Corinthians, you remember, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade men. And that he spoke right after he said, we must all give an account. We are going to all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for all the deeds in the body, whether good or bad. And because of that eschatological fear, that final day fear, because of that fear, he persuaded men to Christ in light of Christ. So the church had come back to realize their divine obligation to acknowledge that Titus was an ambassador of Christ, an emissary 
of God, a fellow worker with God, chapter 6, verse 1, that he was Christ's ambassador, God's servant, God's fellow worker, however you want to say it, that they had divine authority. And then lastly, let's look at the way Paul sums up the whole church this way. He says, I rejoice, in verse 16, he says, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. That is a healthy church. In everything, I am confident in you. Restored confidence. So here is the power of confidence. The power of confidence. These were all my sub points. They're all important. The power of affirmation from their leaders. The power of obedience to the gospel. The power of cooperation with the gospel and with the leaders. And then lastly, the power of confidence. The power of confidence. Paul had the utmost confidence now. It's interesting, but this word confidence means courage. It means certainty. It means boldness. And this is what Paul was. He was bold now about who they were. He was, he was courageous to say who they were. He was certain that the church was going to fall in line. And I tell you what, this is why I said this is God redeeming the ministry of this church. Because with these things that are fallen in line, the church is effective again. The church can minister again. They can receive leaders. They can send them out. They can refresh. They can encourage. They can rejoice. Because of that, the proof is in the pudding. And Paul could now be proud of this church once again. And you and I can just come to this passage of Scripture and ask ourselves, is our church this kind of church? Do we submit to the gospel? Are we reverent about the leadership? Do we have a high view of the local church? Do we cooperate with the gospel? Are we obeying the gospel? Is our church influential? Do we have the ability to encourage? Do we have the ability to rejoice? Are we doing what, what, what Romans says there in Romans 12? Are we weeping with those that weep? Are we rejoicing with those that rejoice? I tell you what, if you haven't gone to visit Angie, you need to. She would love for you. Oh, she would never say it. But she would long for you to go there for 15 or 20 minutes or half an hour and sit by her bedside and just weep with those that weep. Even if she screams because of her pain, prepare your heart and go in there and minister to her. That's real ministry right there. That's the type of ministry we need to have if we're going to be commended. And then we're going to see the church's obedience really come in at uh, verses chapter 8 and 9. Chapter 8 and 9, just to prepare you, is all about money. <laughs> it's all about money. I'm just looking at chapter 8 and chapter 9, I'm thinking, I've never preached this much about money in my life. I've preached 300 sermons and hardly any of them were about money, explicitly about money. So this is new ground, new territory for me, and I'm sure that a whole philosophy of tithing or giving or whatever, all my convictions are going to come out, and you will know what, I, what view I, I hold to when it comes to all that stuff. So I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of discussions. But look, this is, how we, this is one practical way that we can obey the gospel and participate with the gospel is what do we do with our money? A church, a, you can know a church and what they're about by what they do with their money. Where's their money going? Are they spending $10,000 on a, 
on lights, a new fog machine and music? Or is, it, or is it going to evangelism? Is it going to missions? Are we doing something for the gospel for that, furthering the gospel? Is it going to educate and equip and disciple? Those are very important questions that we need to look at. Well, let's pray together. Let's come on. Let's close in a hymn, and, um, and we will be dismissed. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, again, we just thank you so much, Lord, for the riches of your word. Thank you that you've given us such a clear guide. Lord, it's not up to us. Lord, you've not left it to the subjective opinion of your people, but you've given us such a sure word of prophecy in the Bible. And Lord, we're grateful that you are a God. Lord, to use that cliche again, you are a God in a sense of second chances. You are a God that, re- that redeems. These Corinthians were falling, falling, falling. Failure, failure, failure. And yet you, you, you sovereignly chose to redeem them, to restore them, to bring them back into a place of humble and penitent obedience. And Lord, we just we thank you that you are that type of God. Lord, if you were not so loving, so gracious, if you were not such that you redeem your people in this way and that you give us the grace, greater grace, that we're, when we're faithless, you remain faithful, that where our sin abounds, your grace abounds more and more and more, and that, Father, in you, we have an inexhaustible, inexhaustible wealth and treasure trove of grace, radical grace, transcendent grace, God, grace that endures. We thank you for that grace, Lord. We pray that you would help us to to allow that grace to fuel our worship and to fuel our service. In Christ's name we pray, amen.